to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. He never gives up, he'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe G.I. This is G.I. Joe Book, episode 74, covering... Episode 5 of Arise Serpento Arise. Watch as we all listen, as we tear it apart and embellish it. And then we also talk about Beachhead. <laughs> I'm here with my man Steve, um, as Rob seems to be down on toilet duty, and Kujo is MIA. We believe he's at some convention. Yep. It would appear that... Uh the battles with Cobra forces have inflicted serious losses on the G.I. Joburg team. So we are coming to you today as a dialogue, which actually is kind of the way this thing started, wasn't it, Paul? Yeah, I mean... Uh, you and me shooting the breeze and deciding to record our uh, fireside chats, as it were. Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, we, you couldn't get us to shut up about G.I. Joe. So it's a rainy day in Johannesburg, and we are podcasting our final chapter, part five of Arise, Serpentor, Arise, originally aired today... The 19th of September, 30 years ago. Boom. Yep. Vintage. <laughs> Can you remember what you were doing 30 years ago today, Paul? Uh, 30 years ago today, I was about 3 years old, so I was probably licking the paint or something, or drawing with blue crayon on the wall. But you weren't watching Arise, The Pencil Arise, Part 5. Sadly not. No, exactly. And we were very impoverished for it. But don't worry... We've caught up in our adult lives, and right now we're going to get into the conclusion of what I think might actually be the finest miniseries yet. But before we do that, it's time to talk definitive sculpts. And since Arise, Serpento Arise featured Team 86, as I like to call them, so prominently, we're going to talk about the leader of Team 86, Beachhead. That's right, for those of you who thought it was Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> or Hawk, for that matter. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, I guess I guess Beachhead could be thought of more as a squad leader, and he certainly takes the reins in the end of Part 4 of Arise, Serpento Arise, and Part 5. The great thing about um, having a dialogue, just being the two of us, is we can exclude another member from the party, that being Skype. Because Skype sometimes can be a cruel mistress, and... Uh, and I'm also thrilled at the possibility that if Paul drones on too much, I can give him a, a, a good s- clip, a, a good smack, yeah. <laughs> Dick. <laughs> <laughs> but talking beachhead, okay, well, it was time for uh, reinvention and reinvigoration of the line. We had our premier ranger of the team in the form of Stalker, who was a very memorable character. So in 86, when they decided to reach back into the well that is U.S. Army Rangers, they created this character of Beachhead, which I think we can all agree is also memorable for perhaps slightly different reasons. Whereas Stalker was a street-smart, savvy squad leader, Beachhead is an ultra-disciplined, highly motivated, and extremely competent soldier. 
Uh, one need only read his file card to see how much he enjoys soldiering. The things that other people would find arduous or dull or monotonous, Beachhead actually enjoys. He enjoys. I was gonna say squatting motionless beside a jungle trail for three days straight, waiting to ambush the bad guys that might never show up. He actually enjoys this. I don't know if that's overstatement for the purposes of a of a compelling file card, but that, that's that's pretty telling uh, character trait right there. I think I think he's a fetishist. I mean, he, he likes to squat on the side of a of a jungle road. I mean, what is this guy? He, I I doubt he's constipated. He seems to be fairly healthy. So maybe he just enjoys seeing new places, uh, helping people find freedom, and then shitting there. He's uh, working out some. Um, Coils there. He's notable for always wearing a balaclava, which, if you consider that he's more often than not in a, a sweaty jungle environment, that seems like a bit of a hygiene problem. Under that balaclava, he must be sweating his face off. So it's um with... <laughs> <laughs> with some mirth that I recall Mainframe complaining about Beachhead's deodorant, to which Beachhead's like, I don't wear any deodorant. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so this might be a real thing. I mean, Beachhead might actually be uh, quite, a, quite a smelly dude, but he don't care because nowhere does it say a soldier needs to smell like roses. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard stories of uh, special forces and things like that um, intentionally not wearing uh, aftershaves or deodorants and just trying to get that bush smell when they're out there because what what they want is they want to blend in because apparently uh, when you're out there, and I mean, I can't speak for myself personally, but I mean, apparently when you're out there, you, you become hypersensitive. You start being able to smell things that don't belong there. Are you and, sure uh, you're not paraphrasing Norgahide's file card, hey, Paul? No, no, no. Where, where it says that he smothers himself in hog fat <laughs> to no, mask his own scent? Well, that's, I mean, that's another thing. I mean, I've heard of hunters doing stuff like that. I think um, I, I, I might stand corrected here, listeners, but I believe you get a, a spray um, I, I, in America and for the hunters, for the guys who do deer hunting and things. They get a spray, like a pheromone spray or whatever, so that... It actually attracts deer. It makes deer come to them. So I'd imagine, you know, uh, rubbing yourself with uh, hog fat uh, would have a similar effect. But yeah, this guy doesn't want to be... Uh, he wants to be super sneaky as he takes his poop on the side of the jungle trail. <laughs> <laughs> and there are more versions of Beachhead than one might expect. And the reasons for that, I think, are twofold. Firstly, he is... A character that has had some exposure thanks to the cartoon and has become quite compelling that way in his own right, but also has a very compelling and realistic look. Therefore, he becomes very attractive to update for the modern era because he doesn't need too much tweaking to bring his look up to speed. I mean, he's essentially got all the elements in his original uh, incarnation, that being the 1986 version 1 that they have brought forward into the modern era from the baggy cargo pants, the sidearm, the vest that has slots for magazines. I mean, he seems to be a very well-equipped soldier, even in that original incarnation. And say nothing about his very realistic weapons and equipment. The backpack with the fantastic detail, the crossbow, the quivers, what looks like a uh, a grapple, an unfolding grapple, uh, and a reel of, of cord uh, beneath it, and the ammo case, 
which is something that perhaps uh, we could have seen used more often mm. in the vintage G.I. Joe line because these guys are all running around with machine guns and quite lightly um, equipped in terms of their immediate sculpt. So an additional case of ammunition to sling around themselves, uh, that, seems, that seems pretty prudent. You know he's popular when Sideshow made a figure of him as well. I mean, they uh, set out to make high-end collectibles, and you know, with a high-end collectible, you're supposed to convince people to drop uh, $200 on, a, on essentially a 12-inch doll. You've got to cherry-pick uh, your releases, and Beachhead's up there. And he's up there way ahead of characters like Scarlet and uh, Sergeant Slaughter and other popular, more popular Joes, which I just cannot summon to memory right now. But, but you're uh, not you're not going to make a sideshow toy your number one pick, surely? No, no, <laughs> I'm I'm not. Even though, uh, and it's worth mentioning that it is probably the second or third best sideshow figure in the line just in terms of sheer awesomeness. Uh, I actually, I think my beachhead is the sideshow figure by which I judge other sideshow releases on. All right, let's get down to it, man. Definitive sculpt for beachhead. Bam. Bam. I got to say that the vintage sculpt of beachhead is fantastic. There are some truly memorable little, uh, you know, nuances to him, as Steve just mentioned. Uh, And he has got some great gear, and there's a lot of stuff happening there to just fuel the imagination a true three to three quarter inch army figure that it just has a special personality. But we only really get two variations of him in his vintage format, and then they went to that new sculpt era, and we just ignore that here on GI Joe book generally. <laughs> and 25 years later, so to speak, they released the 25th anniversary, and now we've got a more realistic incarnation of Beachhead. That Beachhead. That being version 10, the uh, 25th anniversary version from uh, 2007, was entirely Firefly with a different head. But he had really loping long arms uh, and weird shoulders. I mean, you can see the formative years of the 25th anniversary in that figure, in that he had complete diaper crotch. I mean, there's no ways you could get him to sit at a 90 degrees. Hell, I don't even think you could get him at like a 60 degrees. He was really, really limited in the leg articulation range of motion so you had to kind of shave down his crotch yeah which we did because i had a buddy who was a huge beachhead fan in fact i know you dismissed the new sculpt era beachheads but the first new sculpt era beachhead version was an all-time favorite of my friends because coming from the o-ring era where figures hands were very restrictive on what you could place in them in terms of weaponry that beachhead had these enormous monkey grip hands which yeah you had no trouble inserting any kind of accessory into there you know what i mean oh yeah the big gun the big big gun and he could open up your mayonnaise for you so my buddy was less enamored with version 10 the 25th anniversary version and it's not difficult to see why the limitations are there the look however, is on the way. Unfortunately, his web gear, while beautiful, magnificently sculpted, has such bulky magazine pouches that it became very restrictive on how the figure could cross his chest. So a different sculpt was necessitated. And we got that. Paul, I think we can cut to the chase, man. Yeah. Version 17. Bam. there, There is no finer beachhead. Yeah. It's all... The vintage flavors, the vintage colorings, 
He's and a real the accessories. Yes, the XF, uh, the Wasp submachine gun, which uh, is Beachhead's well hallmark weapon, has been updated very handsomely. I enjoy the update. The original sculpt update, even the one that has the removable magazine, didn't look quite right in the hands of a modern era figure. So I'm glad they went with version 10, i.e. 25th anniversary version 1, if you want to call it that. Um, They updated that submachine gun and even gave it the bells and whistles of the removable magazine. So there's interaction with the ammo pouch that he includes. There is the fantastically molded 25th anniversary style backpack that accepts the small crossbow. He has a functional holster on the right side, which I think is an improvement because I like to think that Beachhead is right-handed. I know you might have something to say about that, uh, Paul, but you're a lefty and therefore a weirdo and therefore (laughs) your opinion don't matter. No, I'm I'm down with Beachhead being a a righty. I mean, uh, his configuration does seem to serve that he's a righty. I know the original vintage one seems to serve that he might be not a lefty, but... um, at that time, they didn't have drop cords for guns. They didn't. Um, they didn't have that that para strap to keep a, a gun on your on your web gear. So dropping your gun to grab your sidearm was kind of a no no. So you kind of had to get used to your stabilizing hand coming down, pulling out your sidearm as your personal defense weapon if you needed to go there. But now, you know, with modern military, you just drop your main and pull out your personal defense weapon, your handgun. <laughs> so. I'm I'm cool with that. It's it's kind of funny, but with old Beachhead, we've got a lot of incarnations of him in modern era, and he's gone. I mean, from the diaper crotch, the first thing they fixed on him was they released another version of him without a diaper crotch, and they gave us the added bonus of seeing his real head, um, his real face, or at least as far as these guys were concerned, as far as Hasbro were concerned. Do you agree with that head sculpt? Do you, do you think that's what Beachhead looks like under the balaclava? I do kind of, I do agree with that. It's it's weird because I agree with it. It makes total sense. I think that this uh, head sculpt was very much inspired by Call of Duty because there's a, a guy in Call of Duty Modern Warfare and uh, he's quite badass. And they tend to share a similar looking head. And I think that they kind of pulled that from that character. The, it's kind of the, uh, I think he's the squad leader that you first encounter in the very first training mission and the introductory mission of uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare. So I, I can, I'm convinced, I'm sold on this face, but I do prefer Sideshow's interpretation uh, where he does look a bit more like a cheeky kind of goofball kind of guy uh, the voice from the animated series at least seems to fit that face on the sideshow figure more for me but a notable improvement and something i'm glad that they've taken all the way through the line is the first incarnation of his 25th anniversary had that stunning web gear that big puffy web gear but that's the problem it was big and puffy and they went back to his original web gear uh with the uh, magazines on his chest and the tied up beret on his shoulder and that was much better. That made him more endearing. And we've just seen them go from strength to strength, uh, with the exception of the Snarler Cycle Driver version of him. Uh, we had a small detour with the Retaliation, well, I mean, with the Resolute version, which, by all means, is not a bad figure, guys. But, um, yeah, ultimately, for, for me, I also, I gotta say, 17 is the way to go. And the second place is Pursuit of Cobra for me, version 15. Why? 
I love all the gear they give him. Um, I don't recommend that at any given time you put it all on him and you try to sort of sell the idea that he's carrying all of this shit. But um, I do think that this figure has great uh, sort of, uh, what's the word, modular kind of... Well, for, for its time, it is fairly modular. You could um, get different configurations out of Beachhead, and you could see what was a slightly more futuristic take on the figure. Uh, and geared toward perhaps an urban environment. Yeah. Except he has, like, Tiger Force pants and forearms. <laughs> uh, it is a venerable entry. Uh, he has a terrific sculpt underneath the insane vest, vest. that he comes with. Yeah. Uh, and I like the, the the vest. It's loaded with magazines. I mean, that is kind of Beachhead's thing. Yeah. He's packing a lot of extra ammunition. But, once again, very big vest and kind of prohibits his movement in ways that... You kind of don't want for your action figure, exactly. particularly a front man like Beachhead. Mm. Uh, he's not in the back hauling a heavy machine gun. He's one of the guys who's kind of up front going through the doors, lighting the fires. So for those of you who are looking for a true representation or the ultimate uh, representation of Beachhead and you're a fan of the original comic series and the animated series, get yourself version 17. You will not be disappointed. He has all of the bells and whistles, and he's a great update to a classic vintage figure and should not be ignored. And if the version 17 is at all confusing, he came in the 50th anniversary sort of ultimate collection with... Cobra Viper Officer and the Cobra Trooper. The pack is called... Oh, Viper's Pit. There we go. And this is a great set, uh, just by extension. Don't don't go and, like, cherry-pick him on eBay. Try to find the set complete if you can, because if you don't, if you perhaps want him to have more modern um, weaponry and things like that, there are a few selections in the box, and even better, you give him a Viper and a Cobra Trooper to strangle and shoot at and shit near. So, and some barbed wire. And some barbed wire. You can't say no to that. We all have watchtowers. Um, in some form or another, and barbed wire just makes that watchtower look so much more authentic. Hmm. Mm. But now... But the- now, part five of Arise, Serpentor, Arise. Now, Paul, I gave part four five stars, or five DNA recovery devices. Devices, yeah. Because I was thrilled at uh, the culmination of, of this quest of Cobra's. And the fact that it was uh, something different to what we had seen before. It was a battle of of personalities. Whereas previously, there's always been a kind of a MacGuffin. Here the MacGuffin was the creation of a new leader. Mm. And the turmoil that this causes, not only for the conflict, but within Cobra itself. So Arise, Serpentor, Arise was a more sophisticated cartoon than its predecessors. And I must say, it either showed some maturity from Ron Friedman, or perhaps Buzz Dixon, who's credited with the storyline, was a a huge influence on just savvying up the G.I. Joe tune a little bit. Yeah, I I kind of feel that this whole miniseries in its entirety brings the threat of Cobra as a terrorist organization back into the minds of its viewers. I think before um, the original show lost a little bit of direction, I, when I say it lost a bit of direction, I'm not saying that the show loses its quality. It just loses a bit of direction in that, oh, it's Cobra going off to something hokey here or doing something hokey there. And, oh, look, giant explosive vegetables. And it sort of loses its direction a little in that regard. So coming back to having a real threat to humanity 
a real danger from Cobra in the form of the Pentel's arrival does give the show a new sort of breath of fresh air, mm. at least for me. So part five opens with the creation of Serpentor. Oh, well, part four finishes with the creation of Serpentor, and the cliffhanger is not so much a cliffhanger in that the protagonists are in real mortal immediate peril, but more the threat of this new creation, this leader, this ultimate Cobra Emperor. So it becomes interesting for me personally to to chart how this event was handled in the cartoon versus the comic books. I feel that some of the comic book is coming into the series a little bit, it, just in some form or another. Um, there's also a lot of reference to, to file cards, which wasn't really done before, and reference to these characters' personalities, uh, as we mentioned earlier in this episode, Beachhead uh, having bad body odor. That is something that is from the file cards. That is something from... From actual Joe Law, that is not something that was, you know, and it's established in the in the animated series as well. It's little nuances, little touches like that, you know, them attacking Washington once again. It's it's a small nod to the comic book. Without further ado, we're going to go through this run uh, rundown here. No, we're not. Yes, we. I are. want to talk about uh, <laughs> the, the, the divergence from the comic book series. All right, the two primary differences that I, on first blushing, that rose to the fore. And the first is, in the cartoons, Serpentor is a combination of historical figures. That is consistent with the comic book. Comic book. But whereas the cartoon makes Sergeant Slaughter's DNA a priority to replace Sun Tzu and basically give Serpentor the DNA of what Mindbender considers to be the ultimate soldier or the, the, the greatest soldier of our time. In the comic books, he uses another character that has been around in our time. And which character was that? Can you remember? Who did he use? It was, uh, it was somebody kind of cool. It was the recently deceased Storm Shadow. Oh, that's right, yes. I yes. forgot about that. My brain is so sunburned. <laughs> <laughs> well, we immediately see the divergent paths that these two different mediums walked on. While Ron Friedman and Buzz Dixon were very happy to make Sergeant Slaughter, the celebrity G.I. Joe character, the primary focus of their hero worship... Larry Homer, on the other hand, was all too happy to make it a ninja. And in many respects, Storm Shadow had been established to be a very potent soldier to that point. Yeah, I mean, if there's anybody other than Snake Eyes whose DNA you want, it's probably Storm Shadow. Ironically, in the eyes of Cobra, Storm Shadow must have seemed like a rather treacherous character. So it's almost as if the line that Cobra Commander says in Arise of Pentor Arise about having a Cobra leader that has a genetic disposition for betrayal is equally applicable to the comic book series. But it turns out that in the cartoon, Serpentor never gets his dose of slaughter DNA. Mm. The first time round, the DNA is poisoned and is responsible for the production of the meatball monster because Cobra Commander put in his mutated virus strain by sleight of hand (laughs) (laughs) and the second time round Slaughter uses uh, uh, the chains that he's just broken out of to smash the tank containing his DNA so Pentor gets uh, neither Sun Tzu or Slaughter's DNA 
<coughs> Destro asks, how will this affect the creation of the 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 being? And Mindbit is like. I don't know. <laughs> Something which Rob points out is like, yeah, that's kind of obvious. I mean, it came to him in a dream. Yeah. How the hell does he know all the finer details? It's like these are very broad brushstrokes he's using, and that's absolutely true, of course. The other thing, um, just to note there, I mean, the secret ingredient, Sergeant Slaughter, I, I think all the steroids and stuff is, is clearly what, uh, what messes up the experiment the first time. Sergeant Slaughter... Yeah, of course it would yeah. create some prime beef... Or, yeah. or mincemeat, that is. <laughs> yeah, it's like some slaughter Kobe beef. <laughs> <laughs> the other divergence that I find between the comic book and the cartoon series is Mindbender uses his own brainwaves oh, right. to give the simulcrum, which he calls it at the time, a, a, a sort of crash course in the contemporary world. Uh-huh. Because Destro rightly points out that how the hell are we supposed to uh, follow a leader who has the culmination of ancient knowledge uh, and no contemporary knowledge to add to the mix. So Mindbender zaps himself with the brainwave scanner and ensures that a part of his brain is encoded into the Serpentor creation. Yeah, because uh, we would hate to have some of Genghis Khan's traditions uh, come out through in the modern world. The Mongolians had some fairly intense uh, pre-battle rituals and I don't think Cobra would have been able to deal with that. So good on Mindbender for that one. Um, the creation of Serpentor in the comic book series was allowed a lot more air. Its effect on the Cobra hierarchy uh, was felt over a far greater period of time than in the cartoon series. In the cartoon series it was handled very, very efficiently. Everyone was swept up in Serpentor almost immediately, even though Destro does have some reservations saying "Mm, he's quite impulsive. Yeah. The way Serpentor deals with Cobra Commander is very amusing indeed. The commander says to him, Oh, excellent. Uh, You can be an important symbol to us. I'm so glad you're here. Trying to sort of beguile Serpentor into being this this great leader who will rally the troops and ultimately be a symbol for Cobra, but remain a puppet on Cobra Commander's strings. I will not be a figurehead. This I command. Exactly. Serpentor puts the smack down on Cobra Commander like nothing else, which is something that, mm, in the comic book series didn't happen because I guess he needed to earn the respect of the troops he commanded. Mm. Why would anyone put their faith so blindly into something that's just basically risen off of a table? With Cobra uh, creating Serpentor, you you would have had to have some kind of serious internal marketing strategy. Well, to get the effect on the troops that uh, the animated version of Serpentor has on his troops. I mean, these guys are loyal. They, they've, they've heard that Mindbender's cooking up a new boss in the lab, and these guys are ready to lay down their lives for him. And in the comic book, I, I'm sure there's suspicion. I, I, can't think, I can't recall an exact frame right now from the comic book, but there was some apprehension. You do get... Uh, I know that there's doubt somewhere in the comic book. I remember reading that, where the guys are like, oh, this guy's probably going to be as crazy as the last one, or something like that. It was uh, a very gradual switchover, mm-hmm. I think. Cobra Commander was very wary of this creation and kept uh, very close tabs on him. And there was a kind of a, a game of outmaneuver, a sort of battle of wits, as it were, instead of a battle of fists. I mean, Serpentor in the cartoon 
After his creation, he's immediately plunged into fisticuffs with Cobra Commander and then with Sergeant Slaughter, which becomes perhaps the most interesting physical face-off in the episode because you immediately get exposed to Serpentor's ideology. He's not above cheating, which I suppose is very much in the vein of Cobra. So he's got that almost programmed into him. He's definitely not going to be batting for the, for the good guys at any point. But he definitely likes to lead from the front, which is mm, something Destro remarks on. Yeah. He doesn't have the patience of Sun Tzu. He likes to get in there and brawl with his fists, which gives rise to a very amusing scene where you've got the Joe team, which have infiltrated the, the Terradrome, on one hand cheering for Slaughter, and then the Cobras uh, cheering for their new champion. Give him the combination. A one, one, two. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Destra. Of course, Cobra Commander breaks up the party with uh, his battle android troopers, which he's programmed to take out Serpentor uh, and Sergeant Slaughter, just a sort of happenstance. I guess the truce that existed between Cobra Commander and Slaughter from the previous episode has run its course. Of course, yeah. Definitely. You know, Sergeant Slaughter's uh, bounced back from the whole thing. I mean, he's... One of the things they're trying to show, I feel, is that uh, Sergeant Slaughter is slightly more tactical and, like Steve said, uh, we've got a Serpento here which is very impulsive and very aggressive and vicious and just wants to almost prove himself. He wants to, to prove himself to everybody in a weird way. Um, I am so badass. You know, this I command. <laughs> run around, run around. Cute little things that lead up to that uh, situation. With um, the Joe team that sort of infiltrates this um, the Terradrome, uh, you've got Beachhead in them. And... Uh, I, I got a comment on Cobra, Cobra Headquarters or Cobra Terradrome security systems. They must have some kind of very intense DNA scanning situation that's going on there because there were intruders in there and those televipers picked up that there was an intruder in the same room as them, but they just could not figure out where it was. And they pulled the old Metal Gear Solid, hide some Joes in a box trick, and then popped out and you know proceeded to wreak havoc. Um, the televipers themselves seem to be full of hate. <laughs> Just, they, they... What's that all about? They, they seem to wear their emotions on their viewing glasses. I mean... It, it, it's so odd. <laughs> they are a strange conception because I, I, I imagine they're almost cybernetically enhanced. They're, they're walking computers as far as the animation series goes. Yeah, it's a Never p- turn your back on a viper, says the televipers. He yeah. jumps from the rafters. Um, but the fact that they have these, these view plates on their faces that uh, blare these, these red uh, words. Yeah. I mean, what, what's their deal? What's, that, uh, what's up with that? Yeah, it's a cool trait of the cartoon series. It, it kind of, in a weird way, makes the televipers seem almost like the most loyal Cobra officers. And that you never see in the in the animated series, you never really see the televipers betray Cobra. You never see them do anything like run away from battle or. They're no, very diligent tech weenies. Yeah, I mean these are the IT guys from hell. I mean, <laughs> Serpento's slapping everybody around again. I think there was another fine moment. Oh, oh just coming back to something Steve said as well. Um, I can't quite figure out if at this point Cobra Commander is, whether he's in denial or whether he's manipulating things, because his actions are very much like like when you have a shit stir or something in a group of friends, and 
everybody knows that this guy has been causing shit. And he knows that possibly everybody knows. But he still goes up to Serpento and goes, okay, cool. So you've made a good show. Okay, like, you know, like, this is how the, the law is going to go kind of thing. Hmm, but Serpento claps him in irons, man. Like, yeah. Serpento finally does something that, like, the rest of the Cobra hierarchy should have done a long time ago. I mean, if Cobra Commander was being allowed to meddle with their plans so obviously, so blatantly, yeah. surely, I mean, they've, they've done practically everything they could to betray what should be the leader of Cobra anyway. Yeah. They've pulled guns on him. They've usurped his Crimson Guard. They've... I'm very surprised that they just didn't take the ultimate step and either imprison him or just kill him. Yeah, it's... It, I mean, it's crazy that they allow him to run around. And Scrap Iron... Scrap Iron's loyalties or whatever kind of dubious... Very easily bought, I think. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, like... Mindbender like, makes the offer to give him one million gold serpentines. Serpentines. Yeah, serpentines pardon my f- uh, pronunciation. Oh, uh, dude, it's, it's probably a regional thing. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- well, did he ever get that bank? Yeah, I mean... Do yeah, you think Mindbender handed over the money? I'm going to say no, because when Cobra Commander was waving uh, over that bag of gold... Um, Scrap Iron was pretty quick to grab it. I mean, the guy's clearly got bills to pay. He's got a kid on the way or something. So he needs money now. Precisely. I think a uh, bird in the hand worth uh, a million in the bush because we don't see Mindbender handing over the gold. However, Cobra Commander reaches into his double-breasted jacket and pulls out this bag, which um, couldn't be nearly as much as a million gold serpentines. No. Uh, no, but it's money in hand and to basically gold. have to basically yeah. have scrap iron turn a blind eye and allow the commander to reprogram the battle android troopers to attack Serpentor. With uh, the Joes having infiltrated the Cobra Terradrome and Serpentor and uh, Sergeant Slaughter and the bats and everything getting into Royal Rumble, after that the dust started starts to settle. I mean, these our Joes get out with the info. They've saved. Um, Oh, they've rescued Sergeant Slaughter, should I say. Which has got to be the most, like, tragically uh, abrupt cut in the entire episode. Yeah. Like, the Joes just literally run out the door. Yeah. And then they're arriving at HQ, walking through the door. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a snap cut. I mean, it happens all the time in the animated series, but, like, there's just nothing buffering it. Like, Hawk's basically got nothing to say, really. He's yeah. like... You know, just using conjecture about what he thinks Cobra's plan might be uh, with all the DNA. And then, bam, in comes Slaughter and Beachhead and all the rest of the gang. I mean, you know Hawk hasn't got much to say because of all people in the audience, we have Cutter. <laughs> I mean, if you guys... Oh, and Mainframe, who and mainframe. Uh, should actually be somewhere else. Cobra Island. Yeah. <laughs> Whoopsie. Whoopsie. Bazooka's just walked in as well. Like, he's all fucking important, but we know he's not. <laughs> Apparently, Airtight was also in that Involved. Like, uh, it was crazy. Airtight was just making sure that Beachhead wasn't shitting in the bush or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, So I guess it wasn't exclusively Team 86 on that mission. But, uh, Which makes my heart sad. And something, I mean, after we, we've we uh, dealt with the sort of briefing, Beachhead telling us that, uh, you know, he's meaner than a junkyard dog. Oh, it's a great line. Yes. When Beachhead describes the Cobra Emperor, I mean, this is probably my favorite line of the whole debacle. He's smart, savvy, ugly as sin, and meaner than a junkyard dog. No offense, mutt. 
<laughs> it's a goodie. It's a goodie, and Mutt and Junkyard both kind of look at him like... Take uh, offense, man. Like, the fuck, dude? Like, we're right here. Come on. <laughs> you know, after that, uh, after what we would call, like, a very, I don't know, positive uh, scene of the Joes contemplating their next move, we snap into a cut of the Cobras celebrating their new leader with Hail Serpentor. It's quite scary, actually. I mean, at this point in the 1980s, um, you know, Nazis and things like that are still fresh in the minds of people. I'm not saying that everybody's there, but I mean, you've got a lot of guys who were in World War II. They're still alive at that point. And um, well, Friedman, Friedman had a, a very um, simple rule of thumb when characterizing the good guys versus the bad guys. And it was li- literally like, the Joes are liberals, apparently, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though they're a military force, uh, and the Cobras are fascists. Yeah, totally. So there's that element of, of Nazism and, and, I suppose, Italian fascism. And then I've, I've, with the whole thing, I mean, you've got the Cold War, um, and this is a good way to incite fear into into people, just even on a like a basic psych- subconscious level. Them going, hail Serpento, is the last time we saw that happening was with the Nazis. So... We know that Serpento's a big deal. He's uh, he's scary. Uh, the the Cobra organization seems to have an edge to it that it didn't have a few episodes ago. Now it's it's got its edge. It's it's angry. It's it's meaner somehow. And they are also afraid of Serpento. Um, not- and what he's capable of. He does something which is unheard of. And I suppose this is his old school military mind speaking. But he uses. Absolutely everything. Yes. He uses an awesome show of force. His plan is nothing short of bringing the United States of America to its knees militarily. Yeah. Now, I mean, that, that astonishes me. Like, is that to say that Cobra possesses enough force of arms and equipment to match the United States? Because that's never how I've imagined Cobra. Mm. Or is it that they have enough force of arms to invade Washington? And if that's the case, what is his plan? He seems to want to capture the president. Yeah, or bring Washington to its knees or something. Capture the president and have him bring the G.I. Joe leadership before him. Yeah, And, and get rid of them because, you know, clearly they have been a thorn in the side of Cobra for too long. Why have they not gotten rid of them? You know, like because it seems like, it's like so in, fucking easy to do. <laughs> because in this world, it seems like uh, beyond GI Joe, the only military force that exists uh, are the, the kind National of guys. Guard. Yeah, exactly. The kind of green guys that guard things. Yeah. There's no actual United States armed <laughs> force uh, in existence in this world, or at least not one that can actually get anything done other than look after equipment or the White House. Uh, and, and just to reference World War Two again, I mean, this is very Pearl Harbor here. I mean, this is a, this is squadrons upon squadrons of, like, air superiority just coming down on Washington, and oh, once again using Strata Vipers as paratroopers. I was about to say that <sighs> freaking Strata Viper. What did he crash his Raven or what the fuck? But yeah, strategically, what Serpento's doing is not necessarily wrong. Technically, Cobra's kind of been going ass about face with this whole thing, with this whole taking over America thing. I mean, as as direct show of force, if you've got it, is fairly adequate here. It did work. It did uh, put America into a lot of panic, and it did get America to go and, you know, take our terrorist leaders in, in, in full force. And 
what Cobra is doing here, this is exactly what uh, like Al Qaeda did. I mean, they just went for a full strike instead of crashing a plane. They've just bought fifty freaking night ravens and fire bats and uh, and and all kinds of mad shit. I mean, technically, Cobra should win here. I mean, this is a very direct attack for the cartoon. Long story short, folks, what I'm trying to get at here is that for the first time ever, we're actually seeing Cobra use their weapons as weapons against the government and not try to use giant vegetables or something. It's but, it's unusual. What do you think of uh, Serpentor's throne at the Lincoln Memorial? Yeah, he's just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he's on a high chair. Yeah. He's a kid at a restaurant with his feet dangling off the edge of the chair and unable to reach the ground. At one point, he has to kind of hop down off it. I mean, it's, just, it's a bit laughable. But, you know, having a flair for the dramatic, that uh, an amalgamation of, of history's greatest, most eccentric uh, military minds has has left him with this need to kind of create an important image, uh, even at the cost of practicalities. I mean, one look at his uniform, and that's that's what you get. Incidentally, I mean, among Mindbender's many uh, talents, he seems to have um, costume design as one of them. To be fair, I mean, he got that vision <laughs> was, from the... It was Mindbender's uh, brainchild, this yeah. uniform, and the air chariot. Oh, don't forget about the, the air, air chariot. chariot. <laughs> the best feature of Serpento, in my opinion. That thing is awesome. You I, like it? I dig it. I would love one of those. I, I still Why, want, Paul? I still want a 25th anniversary one. I just find it just adds something to Serpento. I mean, he's always flying around. He's always doing this on his little air chariot. It, it looks complete. It kind of... I feel that Serpento is kind of naked with Adi's air chariot. And and this is because my fir- the first time I really saw Serpento was kind of a mix between a catalog offering him as a as a mail-away exclusive and um, seeing him in the movie. And that always intrigued me. I, by then, I mean, as a as a kid who didn't really know too much, you, you got the impression that, okay, Serpento was the supreme leader because he's a big golden snake riding a big golden snake chariot thing. He's got to be important. G.I. Joe decides that, fuck that throne. They're like, that throne's dumb. Who cares? We'll just shoot at the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, you know, not, not a shit is given. <laughs> well, it's, it's ironic that G.I. Joe's plan to retake Washington kind of throws their entire hierarchy into the jaws of the enemy. If it's Serpentor's plan to have the G.I. Joe team surrender themselves to him personally... Uh, G.I. Joe offer themselves on a silver platter. Mm. <laughs> Hawk masquerades as the president of the United States and marches right up to Serpento. And when Serpento asks, where is a representative of the G.I. Joe team? Hawk's like, right here. <laughs> it's like, what? Huh? Is that your plan? Your plan to win this is to walk right into the most heavily defended, concentrated part of Cobra and just give yourself up. I mean, they break out the pistols and, and start uh, waging war. And in predictable fashion, manage to shoot themselves out of the tough situation. Even though they're surrounded. Completely <laughs> surrounded. And, of course, Hawk is face-to-face with with Serpentor, who uh, we've seen is capable of going toe-to-toe with Sergeant Slaughter. Yeah. So, and can pick up Destro. With one arm. This perhaps is an element of the the cartoon that is not as sophisticated. Joe's plan, well, yeah, it's rubbish. <laughs> it is rubbish. It's also kind of um, strangely like subversive uh, uh, in the in the sense that a few episodes ago, Joe was riding in a column of tanks 
um, to Paris to try and st- uh, stop Cobra from taking genetic information. And here, there's no tanks, there's no ore strikers or anything yet, but uh, they sneak in. The sneaking in part, I think, is more strategically sound. But yeah, the getting out of there, uh, I don't know. <laughs> that, that's where that plan was flawed. Scarlet and Duke are obviously having relationship issues because, you know, now we've got Duke and Lady Jade back to back and covering each other, which is odd. And um, Flint's kind of in the mix as well. Like, yeah, I, guess, I guess he holds the camera nowadays. Yeah, I'm, I was about to say, the <laughs> camera duties have changed. And some of my favorite moments are, are sort of coming around this, this fight, this battle. Um, in the show, they do have something to do with our featured definitive sculpt for this episode. So, I love Beachhead's little dive roll, grabbing the bazooka uh, and lunging backwards and firing it off. I thought that was such a cool move. I mean, that's the kind of thing you want from toys. You know, you want you want to see from a cartoon that's about toys. You want to see them doing cool stuff. Leatherneck jumping down with his gun in a like, prone position and he's firing off. It's, it's all these cool like soldiery things that you got to do in video games and everything. And it's just seeing them on screen. It's, just, it's a lot of fun. It's exciting. But, of course, the cavalry arrives, finally. Uh, the G.I. Joes have managed to shoot themselves out of a sticky situation. And they get support from 86's um, mm, armor. That being the Triple T and the Havoc, and the Havoc, which are deployed via helicopter. Now, is that plausible? Yes. Can you deploy armored vehicles it by is, helicopter? It is plausible. I have you, actually. Seen you it. could not pick up an Abrams. No. Uh, what I have seen that they've done, I've actually seen Abrams and things like that. Okay. In terms of getting it out of a situation, I have seen pictures of um, helos, and I'm talking about not Blackhawks. I'm talking about uh, Chinooks that are flying parallel to each other, that have actually have a tank on a mooring point that they've lifted out. Is this a Bradley? Uh, it could be a Bradley. I'm not... Uh, it could be a Bradley. I'm not sure on the tank. My tank knowledge is not the best. It's it's difficult for me sometimes with tanks. I can't think off the top of my head how much an Abrams weighs, but like 60 tons doesn't seem unrealistic. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't seem unrealistic. But yeah, I mean, you can't put that in a plane. <laughs> but what I have seen is I have seen tanks come out of the backs of uh, C-130s. I have seen uh, tanks come out of, um, well, smaller armored vehicles come out of Chinooks. I have seen pictures of that. Um, I've, I'd be interested to call I that just bluff, wanted to double check. <laughs> I want to double check on the Chinook. No, I saw it recently, actually. Um, it was I was actually quite surprised. I didn't realize that they moved stuff around like that. I've seen jets being transported oh, well, in, jets, uh, of course. in C-130s jets, as well. Jets are it, not designed to be tanks. Yeah, no, no, that's <laughs> I mean, true. The, the, but the, I mean, the kind of weight that we're talking about of, of, of a tank, it's astronomical. Jets are designed to fly and therefore are as lightweight as they can possibly be and still fulfill their function. But a tank, yeah, that's, that's some spectacularly I've, heavy equipment that... Yeah, no, very much so. So, I mean, in some ways, yes, it is realistic, but I've actually seen it being done with other things. I've I seen... just, I mean, the point of what I'm trying to say is clearly a havoc. I mean, just in case you were wondering whether it was a very armored vehicle or not, um, the, fact not. That a, <laughs> the fact that a tomahawk can heft it around, no, it's, it's just as flimsy as one might expect. It's a, it's a tank in in tread only. Yeah. Uh, it's it's basically an armored car, perhaps even not even as an. It's an AFV. It's an armored fighting vehicle. That's basically what we could call it, because mm. it's not really an APC. It's not. Designed it's a to heavily fight. articulated vehicle ordnance carrier. 
There we go. <laughs> That's what it is. That's a hammock. <laughs> you know? It's in the name, baby. And then also to, to further stretch uh, the imagination when it comes to vehicles, uh, Joe and Cobra have just uh, had some great uh, show of force flinging red and blue lasers at each other through multiple vehicles, notably the ore strikers and the Havocs. What did you uh, think of the action when it came down to the vehicle I, fights? I would have liked it to have been longer. We were kind of cheated, unfortunately, yeah. because Cobra was defeated by their own lack of logistical planning. Mm. That's a huge failing of Serpentor. You'd think that logistics would be quite prominent in the man's mind. I mean... An army marches on its stomach. That's something that all the great generals, that's the sort of a maxim that that you can't ever forget. You need to keep your men motivated, fed, well-equipped. And that just, you know, that, that, that same theory uh, extends to your, your vehicles, your cavalry, your, your horses, uh, and, and other equipment. You know, you can't, hey, you can't conduct a campaign without... Fueling up your vehicles. And this is where his lack of Sun, Sun Tzu DNA has really failed Cobra because Sun Tzu's DNA would have definitely given him the understanding of his terrain and, more importantly, an understanding of his enemy. I and kind I think- of wish they'd gone a bit more contemporary than that. Sun Tzu, being a philosopher, fine. I mean, it would give Serpentor perhaps a, a bit more balance when he's kind of viewing his situation from a sort of a zoomed out perspective. Mm-hmm. But someone with a bit more practical experience in how to wage a modern warfare, I don't know, maybe Rommel, uh, you know, the, the Desert Fox, he was conducting tank warfare on a daily basis in North Africa and winning. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that uh, Germany's tanks are so ferocious and so popular because well, they were used to full effect. I mean, I'm not saying the that... The Tiger. The, I'm not saying they're the best tanks ever made. I'm they not, were the best tanks ever made, weren't they? Well, yes, they were. I mean, they That were, was their downfall because well, they were so well made. They could only be made in, in uh, smaller numbers. In smaller numbers, but uh, Germany basically wrote the book on tank warfare. I mean, like the way it, it goes down. Which is so, ironic yeah, because, so. like, they completely snubbed the tank back in the First World War. Yep. I guess they learned that lesson hard. They learned hard. their lesson hard, yeah. Now we have Cobra Commander wielding a weapon that is not a hairdryer. <laughs> ah, you're skipping to the end, aren't you? No, I just... Uh, it just came to my mind. I mean, when I was watching the episode earlier, and we've got the episode running in the background, but when I was uh, watching it earlier, I was actually quite surprised that he was the one carrying the flamethrower. When when you see the flames, I was half expecting torch. Mm. Yeah, I must say it's something that I tend to forget as well. But it's a very very good moment right there. I yeah. mean, all of a sudden, Serpento was saved by the one least likely. I suppose from the writing perspective, it was the obvious move to make. But Serpentor swats him aside anyway. Mm. The, the Cobra hierarchy are making good their escape on the last raven to have any fuel left in the tank. Oh. And it's Cobra Commander who throws up a wall of flame separating the Joes from the Cobras that are trying to escape. Cobra's like, please take me with you. Serpentor's like, no, to hell with you, man. <laughs> you think the act of saving our bacon is going to endear you to me? You're a threat. I'm not going to let you stick around and stab me in the back later. Exactly. But Cobra Commander lays the coup de grace on Serpentor, saying... You can turn me into your scapegoat. You can yes. make me your scapegoat. And that's very smart. 
And it's it's weird because at this point... You can point, make me your scapegoat when everyone else finds out you're not perfect. perfect. Exactly. Cobra Commander sees the writing on the wall even when everyone else was blind to it. Cobra Commander got Sansu's genes. Although, I must say, maybe Cobra Commander's confusion. Because, yeah, there's a story about a scorpion on the frog's back and how the frog refuses to take the scorpion over the water. And after much uh, sort of arguing and and sort of negotiation the scorpion finally convinces the frog to take him over the water and the, the frog does and the scorpion stings the frog once they get to the other side and the frog was like scorpion why did you sting me and the scorpion was like because it's in my nature and i think uh Serpento understands that about cobra commander and now the cobra commander understands that about himself but he's very good at spinning it uh, into a situation where yes he's a scapegoat and he can forever be the, the the sort of poster boy for mess-ups in, in Cobra, which is a good thing, I suppose. Keeps Cobra Commander a little, uh, alive a little longer, so that's great. And then they all jump into the very, very well-furnished uh, Night Raven. <laughs> the Night Raven that has a crew compartment in the back. It's the plus-size Night Raven. Plus-size <laughs> Night Raven. It's like... You can fit a whole bunch of people in that thing. And, of course, we must make mention of the fact that it uses the authentic to the toy uh, system of the taking... Uh, yeah, the drop-down cockpit, uh, taking people on board. That's a nice touch. It seems, though, it, that in this case, you can kind of run up a set of stairs yes. into a kind of a, a crew area, which also pretty cool. But once the cockpit then slides back up, I suppose those stairs kind of, what, do they flatten? Uh, to make know. it a passageway? <laughs> it's hard enough just getting two guys in that thing. Mm-hmm. Never mind. You know, finding the right two guys to get in that thing. Yeah, well, uh, they're called Strata Vipers. That's where they belong. Not paratrooping and being ground troops or throwing punches to try and take out Sergeant Slaughter. Thank you very much. The cartoon uh, sometimes gets it wrong quite spectacularly. Yeah, no, when it gets it wrong, it gets it wrong. <laughs> oh, my word. When it gets it right, it's... It's uh, it's a nice surprise. <laughs> so at the beginning of this journey, our uh, friend in absentia, our esteemed colleague, Curtis Herod, a.k.a. Special Missions Cujo, he floated a theory to us saying, the rise of Pentor Arise is about Mindbender coming out. Coming out to his friends, his old pal Cobra Commander. And in a very Rocky Horror sense, Mindbender is creating his ultimate leader. Yeah. <laughs> Talk yeah. about leader. Yeah, like the best boyfriend ever. <laughs> Sound like a boyfriend to me. <laughs> but perhaps it's an oversimplification. Um, Arise a pen to arise is about Mindbender's self-discovery. I mean, he's rocked by dreams about... DNA about Cobra Commander, his friend, barring him from living the life of fabulousness that he he so wants to be a part of. I mean, it doesn't look like DNA. It looks like a Christmas tree covered in lights. (laughs) It's fabulous. Fabulous lights. (laughs) But something occurred to me while watching part three, and that's Mindbender's admiration for Sergeant Slaughter. Yes. The greatest soldier of our time. Of course, Mindbender's making this discovery while he's manning this very phallic drill. I mean, there are some 
fascinating undercurrents to arise, to pants or arise once you start peeling back the layers. Yeah, I mean, and, and what what does it say about Buzz Dixon and Ron Friedman, and what does it say about the the guys in Korea or Japan that were animating this? Series? Or what does it say about us? Or me specifically, and, and perhaps to some degree, my, my buddy Kujo. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. We're, we're perhaps seeing things where there aren't things to see. But, uh, man, some of the imagery really does lend itself to that. I mean, as we see in Mindbender's big reveal, he seems to be kind of stepping out of a doorway or closet. <laughs> yeah, I'd hate for G.I. Joburg to be labeled as some kind of... Uh male-driven, sort of uh, bigoted show or something. But, uh, you know, Mindbender made Serpento's outfit as well. And I'm not saying that that's, like, that guys can't make outfits. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that only gay guys make outfits, but I am saying that Mindbender made a pretty fabulous outfit for Serpento, and it's it's there. It's a, he, you know, it's got a snake motif. It's gold. It's garish. Okay, yeah, maybe it's possible Mindbender isn't gay. I mean, the thing is a big gold snake suit. Uh, I don't know any self-respecting gay designer who would actually do that. But hey, you know, how many I, do you know, buddy? Well, no, not very many personally. No, no, like maybe one. <laughs> <laughs> but that was certainly. Um... Picking up where old Cujo left off, that's that's how I understand the sequence of events. If we were to color Mindbender in a slightly um, more pink light. <laughs> but anyway, moving right what along. What were you going to say? Anyway, what I want to say is I love that fight scene. I thought it was great. I, I like the little action stunt moments uh, from the Joes. The little rolls, the little jumps to the ground, uh, lays, blue and red lasers going on everywhere. Hawks sort of surrounded by by greenies, and they've made this little makeshift fort in uh, in like literally five seconds or less. They managed <laughs> to establish a sort of a miniature beachhead in there. They are with green shirts with green shirts who are also covert experts. Yeah, clearly, um, uh, you've got no civilian population whatsoever running away or running in fear of Cobra. Except for the five or six that uh, work in the White House, when yeah, civilians the- don't live in Washington. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, clearly not. And I just really love that battle. I love that whole thing. I loved uh, Cobra Commander's uh, little line at the end. Uh, he's old, uh, letting Serpento know that he's necessary uh, because a scapegoat, somebody to pin the blame on when things are going bad, is is a, is a healthy military specialty to have in your ranks. Uh, that was fantastic. The show has been full of treachery. We have Thrasher already thinking of overthrowing Sartan and Serana. And I had underestimated exactly how intelligent Thrasher is. Yeah, that man's smart. He is he's subverting the Dreadnoughts. And he seems to have the stones. I mean, he's, he's, he's a smart guy. Uh, that much is clear. Certainly a lot smarter than his Dreadnought brethren. And he's like, wh- why do we need Zartan and his little wimpy brother and sister? Exactly. And that's, that's more a, gold for us. And it also ties up a nice little knot from an earlier episode with uh, Zartan sort of rejecting his membership. Uh, a point I think I brought up was that uh, maybe Zartan had a feeling that Thrasher would actually be a, a problem, threat. a threat. And, mm. and in true fashion for this five parter, with betrayal being around every corner, Zartan was pretty smart. Zartan tried to get him out there and. You know, and Thrasher's 
pretty much being like the Cobra Commander ex-girlfriend in this situation. You know, he's just trying to get himself into Zartan's way of life as much as possible. And let's face it, he kind of outsmarted Zartan right off the bat. Mm. Zartan didn't want Thrasher to be part of the Dreadnoughts until he had no choice. Yes. Until... Thrasher had the ace card, that being the Thunder Machine. And Zartan's like, oh, fine, you can be a Dreadnought. Just shoot the Joes. Yeah. So it played perfectly into old... And, 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 and give me a ride in that sweet car of yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, hey, uh, dog. Uh, joining us on uh, episode 74 of G.I. Joburg is Gamble, my dog. His uh, military specialty is chewing up everything, stealing your shoes, and jumping over other dogs. (laughs) His secondary military specialty is to hide under the blankets and pull the blankets off you and then jump off the bed and go and lie down somewhere else. Ambush has got nothing on Gamble. Gamble. Highs and lows, Paul. Let's do it, buddy. Super high is... The revelation of Cobra Commander's importance to Serpento at the end, I think, is a is a high moment. Uh, totally. The battle at the Lincoln Memorial was great. And also, Serpento's invasion of Washington, for me, was fantastic because you just see a veritable swarm of ravens, fire bats, it all, uh, coming out of that pterodrome to go and, you know, give America what for. And I thought that was very powerful. It's a very strong image um, that I really enjoyed. Lowe's, it's kind of weird. As uh, uh, Seeing as we're at the end of this whole, uh, we're getting to the conclusion of the five-parter, I think a big low for me is that a lot of stuff wasn't as fully realized as it could have been. They spent a lot of time trying to establish the story and give us a real Indiana Jones-style adventure up until this point with visiting strange locations and dealing with traps and dealing with be- betrayal and whatnot. But... I'm kind of sad at the fact that the battles weren't as long as they could have been. I think the final battle should have been longer. I think it could have been a bit more complex. They could have had it happen on a few more levels instead of it just being outside the Washington Memorial. I mean, the Lincoln Memorial, sorry. And I I, I just feel it's a bit of a, a a missed opportunity. And also, I just feel that a lot of Serpento should have actually happened sooner. I actually feel that Serpento should have maybe come to uh, self-realization or rather should have uh, become sentient in episode 4 so that we had a giant battle with a cliffhanger that had to be uh, resolved in episode 5. I do feel that that is something that is a bit wrong with this but uh, it's not terrible. You know, it's not like this horrible thing. I I feel that the the whole thing concludes rather nicely and those would be my major lows. I, I can't think of anything that stands out to me as being extremely ugh or bad on this episode sure i'm gonna echo your low by saying that it it did become kind of anticlimactic that cobra cobra was ultimately undone by themselves which is hugely simplistic yeah i mean anyone who knows anything about military leadership knows that it's 10 percent actual conflict and 90% logistics, mm. getting into position, making sure you have enough clothing, food, water, fuel, ammunition. The fact that the dying phases of the conflict were the Cobras running around going, we're low on ammunition, the planes are falling out of the sky because they're low on fuel. 
that's sad. It's sad that it ends that way. I'm like, Joe had it easy. After all these other skirmishes where they were clearly coming out second place, to then have victory handed to them on a silver platter, it's a bit of an indictment on how short-sighted Serpentor is. I would have been very interested to watch the fallouts of this battle. If Destro doesn't blame Serpentor for having some shoddy military thinking, then then Destro is kind of falling asleep at the wheel. Mm. Because he's always quick to bemoan Cobra Commander's uh, constant need to retreat or basically bungling an assault. But this is a rather unforgivable uh, faux pas on their newly elected leader. Not even elected leader. They made him, and yeah. he just assumed control. A but big... it did give us some pretty spectacular images. I mean, how subversive is it seeing that montage of the Cobra flames? Oh, yes, with the... kind of Yeah, the with... flames <laughs> reaching up over Washington and creating a Cobra symbol. It became very um, abstract, I suppose, but... Imagine showing that to children. That's quite a, a shocking image to to show to someone on their Saturday morning cartoon watch. And also, dear listeners, if you guys have had the chance to watch this on the DVD box set, then it means that you've gotten to watch the episodes individually or as a continued film. And if you watch them individually, you get a lot of the find out what happens in the next episode of G.I. Joe, and then you get the recap. And the recap for this episode, it ends with Cobra's unholy experiment. That is the word that they use, unholy experiment. So everything they could do to sort of drum up the fact that Serpentor is some real force of evil and terror has been done in this episode to the best of their abilities. So yeah, uh, fiery Cobra motifs over Serpentor's sort of faces while Washington burns. You know, Mm. (laughs) it's crazy. Um, My high points are twofold. One is, in terms of story and plotting, that here we have a miniseries that doesn't have some MacGuffin, some device that will force the world to its knees. It's simply a show of arms. We're going to invade Washington. We're going to bring America to its knees. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as it ever needed to be. It's something that was staring Cobra in the face all these years, and they never once did it. Yep. There was always some roundabout Machiavellian kind of scheming that Cobra I- engaged in to try and enact their plans. Here, all it took was someone to stand up and say, hey, we've got all this equipment, let's just kick some ass. And that's something that was hugely refreshing at this point. When Cobra are often stymied by this kind of plot of the week, type storyline to have a guy come along and say no to hell with all that got all these planes and tanks all parked out front let's go and take over overthrow the government bring a nation to its knees capture the president capture the gi joe team let's do it that kind of level of decisiveness i could stand to see more of that i imagine it would get tired after a while but Cobra would constantly need to find ways of being able to bring an overwhelming force of arms. I mean, that is a more interesting struggle. Episodes that that involve Cobra needing to make money 
uh, were intriguing to me for that exact reason. Because if you have enough money, you can have enough weapons. Weapons will win this war. Exactly. And influence will win this war. You know, the, it's not about creating a device that will change the, the weather. Yeah, that, that plot device got tired fast. And I'm glad that part five of Rise of Pencil Rise does not involve it in the slightest. My other high point is this exchange between Lifeline and Lowlight. Isn't there a better way to solve your problems than with your fists? To which Lowlight says, Yeah, that's why I got a gun. Exactly. (laughs) And I love that because that, that is such a punch in the face of that sort of pacifist kind of way of thinking. Because... You've got Lowlight fighting these guys, and he's not shooting them because he's not some violent monster, and he's punching them, and then, you know, you've got some idiot like Lifeline sort of asking that exact question, and it just shows you that Lifeline doesn't understand, you know, that, that their survival is also important, and, you know... Hey, I like that because it's a cool line, delivered well. But don't get me started on Lifeline's philosophy. That, unfortunately, in the way it's presented in this miniseries, is a low point. Yes. It's not structurally sound. Lifeline is painted far better in the comic books, where his pacifism extends to himself. He understands that he has a role to play in a combat unit, and that's to save lives. But he understands that G.I. Joe's mission is an important one. Here, Rob is absolutely right in saying, why is he part of this? If he is so against the notion of violence, even as a means to an end, then even the act of patching up his own guys is to enable violence, which he detests. On some level, Lifeline must understand that... Violence is a necessary way of meeting violence and stopping further loss of life. That a show of of aggression, of force, is necessitated to bring certain elements of the world under control. You can't negotiate with everything all the time. No, Besides, no. the show is not Star Trek, it's G.I. Joe. I realize I'm, I'm now talking about a kind of an eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth scenario. The saying is, violence shouldn't be the first answer... But when everything else you've tried has failed you, then violence is the answer. The threat threat of violence is your nation's deterrence against terrorist elements that would seek to disturb your way of life. And when they call your bluff, you best believe that you have to step in, enact that threat of violence. I quote um, Splinter, uh, Master Splinter, when I say this, but... First, do no harm. Unless you mean to do harm, then do lots and lots of harm. (laughs) Okay, that's the first rule of being a ninja, folks. (laughs) Very good. Let's rate it, man. Ooh, wow. Final episode of Arise to Pencil Arise, a miniseries that I thoroughly enjoyed and thoroughly enjoyed this process of rediscovering it on its 30th anniversary. I gotta say, you guys have heard my low points, and you know that they're not these crippling low points. And you've heard my high points, and I think that they are pretty cool moments in the in the animated series. And sometimes for for this kind of show, uh, and especially when we're comp- uh, concluding a a five parter, I think it's very important that you kind of think of it in terms of if you want to show somebody GI Joe who's never watched uh, watched GI Joe before, what are the episodes or miniseries that you can use to show him or her. And I would say Arise of Pencil Arise, episode 5, for me gets 
five Cobra members in a Night Raven. Um, because it's a good episode. It does finish it off well, but it has this philosophy in it that, that I really enjoy. It's got a lot of kind of moral qualities. Not like, hey kids, remember not to steal. It's got some really good morals, and they're not up in your face. They're there if you're looking for them. And for me, my takeaway, my moral from that is that you cannot lead by force or fear. Because when you live, uh, lead by force of fear, nobody is willing to challenge your rule, and that is why you fail. And that is where Serpentor failed, is that everybody was too scared to challenge him, except for Cobra Commander. And Cobra Commander's worth was completely taken down to zero by his um, fellow Cobra officers and hierarchy members and... It's sad because they didn't stop Serpento from being anything. Destro commented on it. So guys, this is the lesson you should learn. If one of your friends is doing something stupid, be the guy to tell them they're doing something stupid. Otherwise, you're not going to take over the White House, man. It's as simple as that. You're going to have to get into your Night Raven flyway. I gave part four a five-star rating simply because I think that it had the right mix of horror and pathos and action. It was a difficult episode to beat. This is the episode that needed to draw all the strings together, and it did deliver some great moments. But I can't overlook the fact that the action concluded, perhaps prematurely, and points to a structural problem within Arise, Serpent, or Arise, that Paul actually listed just now, saying that we should have had Serpentor in play a lot sooner than we did. So I can't give it a perfect score. But I'll tell you guys, for nothing, that, and I don't know, maybe I'm just in an emotional state right now, but when the Joes hoisted the flag atop, uh, is it the White House? I think they were on top of the White House at that yeah. point. They hoisted the American flag and all gave the salute as Slaughter said, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. vigilance. I kind of got a little choked up. I was, mm-hmm. I, got, I got a little teary. I was like... This is a, a, a more poignant moment than I'm used to. Mm. Normally, we end with all the Joes giving a hearty belly laugh. Yeah, I go, ha, 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 ha. We're this, not perfect. But. This victory really got to them. It rocked the heart of their nation. And so, it, I mean, there's a beautiful exchange amongst the leadership. You know, Hawks saying, oh, we beat them this time, but they'll be back. You know, I don't know what we're going to do about this new guy. We Like... He's dangerous. Uh, he's clearly like rewritten the Cobra rule book. This is all the kind of notion that I extrapolate from that scene. And it seems to me like the Joes are a little bit shaken. They're a bit harrowed by how close they came to defeat this time. The stakes are higher and there's this wave of nationalism that, that takes you at that point. And I, <laughs> I'm not an American citizen, but I feel something, and uh, it's, it's difficult to ignore. Mm. So, I mean, I'm going to default to uh, four out of five, uh, which is uh, an excellent score without being a perfect score, but I think it's a fair score. And that gives this episode an average rating of four and a half out of five. Yeah, it's, it ain't perfect, but it does okay. <laughs> <laughs> which then gives the series... An average rating of 3,66. I'm going to round that up to 3,7. Which means that in the miniseries that G.I. Joburg has 
had under review, that being the Weather Dominator, the Permit of Darkness, and now Arise, Serpent, or Arise. Arise, Serpent, or Arise is, <laughs> surprise, surprise, the favorite miniseries. It's the miniseries. Mm. With a score of 3.7, it beats Revenge of Cobra, or the Weather Dominator, uh, which had a score of 3.3, and it very clearly <laughs> defeats the Pyramid of Darkness, which had a total overall score of 2,25. Clearly, that was a low ebb in the writing stakes of G.I. Joe miniseries. But it's been a terrific retrospective on uh, 30 years old cartoons, and we've had some very cool contributors on this uh, entire passage of play. First and foremost, obviously, our friends in Absentia, Robert Lee and Special Missions Cujo, but then also Merck Samler, who is actually in the Norwegian Armed Forces. Well, that's his job. He happens to be listening to us while he's on vacation in Spain drinking pink champagne. How, how cool is that? I know, right? <laughs> I, uh, I dig his name, man. We also had uh, my good friend, our good friend, Jim Godfrey, offering some comment uh, here and there. And mainly just uh, lighting fires under my ass as to when the next episode was going to be released. <laughs> Ten four, good buddy. Ten four for those long drives. <laughs> and of course, our good buddy Dave Cabal. Just to mention a few guys who've been with us on this journey. Ladies and gentlemen of the audience, we really, really enjoy it when you engage with us. Let us know what your definitive sculpts were for Sergeant Slaughter, for Dr. Mindbender, for Zorana, for Hawk, and for Beachhead. You can find us on Twitter, at G.I. Joburg. You can find us on Facebook, G.I. Joburg. Or you can just make a smoke signal. Yeah, we will probably see it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the ride, guys. It's been great. And thanks to Sunbow and their crazy team for making this miniseries. This is Paul, that's me, and Stephen, that's... Oh, it's me, Stephen. <laughs> what about me? Signing off on episode <laughs> 74. Episode 74, G.I. Joburg. Guys, tune in next time when we talk about something other than cartoons. But you know, it'll always be Joe. Yo, Joe! Ivan. Ivan. <laughs> Cobra! Yo, Ivan. Hail. Hail Serpento. Hail Cobra. Hail Cobra. <laughs>